0: It's up for debate on KLJXLP Flagstaff, KJAC 107.1. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I'll be bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports. Every single Wednesday, we bring in the candid Clark, Sean Clark, to talk about what he's published, the different things he's writing about on his website.
1: Sean, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, doing pretty great. Champions League is back, which is, in my opinion, one of the two best tournaments in the world. The other being March Madness. So, and, and oh yeah, that's happening next month too. So, great time to be a sports fan now. I, like I said, sadly NFL season's over, but the, with these two things, like I don't miss it currently.
0: Yeah, we've got a ton to talk about. We do have some Champions League to talk about, some St. John's basketball, and then a couple NFL topics, but. Let's start out with Champions League. It's the beginning of Champions League. Can you tell us
1: why we should be watching? Well, here's the thing about the Champions League. Do you like the best of the best competing? Do you also like just pure insanity? Well, that's what the Champions League has. Also, Champions League theme is the best theme in sports. Like, like, list, like go listen to it. It is amazing. I, if I just need a little boost, I just listen to the Champions League theme. It is absolute perfection. And here's the thing about the Champions League: you see the superstars battle. You have Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, Kylian Mbappe is now taking his place as the best player in the world. And you see a bunch of insane comebacks. I'll I'll give you I'll give you an example. So, in the Champions League, you, each each series in the round of sixteen through the semifinals are split in two legs, home and away. The tiebreakers away goals. And two thousand nineteen in the Champions League semifinals. Barcelona beat Liverpool 3-0 in the first leg at Barcelona. Liverpool came back home, and without two of their leading scores, they came back and defeated Barcelona 4-0 in an epic 3-0 comeback. Literally the next day, Ajax took a 3-0 lead on Tottenham in the second leg at home. And Tottenham needed to score three away goals to advance. Guess what they did in one half? That happened in a span of 24 hours, by the way. So Champions League has the best of the best in the world and the most popular sport in the world squaring off. And there has been pure insanity. In my opinion, some of the most insane sports moments of the last five years have come from the Champions League. That's why everyone should be watching. And yeah, it's actually about to start now with Dortmund, Sevilla, and FC Porto Juventus.
0: Let's go back a little bit. You said that Kylian Mbappe is taking over Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, as the top player in the world. Yes. What makes him so special?
1: Well, first of all, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, they're in their mid-30s. So, their plays are deteriorating a little bit. Also, their respective coach Barcelona and Juventus are not as great. Kim Mbappe plays for PSG, and even though he's only 22 years old, I believe. Yeah, 22 years old, which I'm older than Kim Mbappe. That, uh, yeah, that's crazy. What makes Kim Mbappe is so great is three things. First of all, he has great spatial awareness. He knows where the ball is going. ...to go, and he knows the right lane to to attack and He knows which lane that the pass is going to go to, and he is there. Also, he is the best in the world, in my opinion, at creating his own shot. He is great. Inside the penalty box, he can can dribble the ball. There can be three guys around him, and yet he makes a dribble move... ...and just sprints past them and shoots it almost instantaneously... ...and he buries in the back of the net. His first of three goals against Barcelona yesterday... Was a perfect example that he's just so good at like this, at like dribble, run, shoot, all in like a span of a second. He is excellent at that kind of move, and also on his third goal that got his hat trick, he has a fantastic long range finish on the counterattack from Julian Draxler. He just chipped the ball right to him, and he had a long range curler from almost outside the penalty box to put it past Barcelona goalkeeper Marcher Stegen. Got the goal. PSG won four to one on the road and. The fact that Kim Mbappe has so much speed, so he's so smart with the ball, and he can do things so quickly, he's he's almost impossible to stop in open space. He is, if he, if Kim Mbappe is running at you on a counterattack, it, 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 it's like it's like LeBron about to dunk on you in transition. It's the, it's the same thing. It's it's terrifying and it's basically it's basically hoping to show that yeah the- France is dominating the world of soccer right now they're probably going to win the Euro tournament this summer they're probably going to win the next World Cup too and make it back to back and
0: let's talk a little bit about legacy of-, of Mbappe obviously he's 22 years old he's still very young still at the beginning of his career how much would it take for him to eventually overtake the careers of guys like Messi and guys like Ronaldo?
1: Well, here's the thing. This is actually very relevant to what we talked about last week. Mbappe is basically the Mahomes of soccer. He's, he's basically Patrick Mahomes. He's a talent that we've rarely seen, and he's been so successful so young. Four years ago, Kylian Mbappe was, an, was 17, 18 years old with AS Monaco in the French League, and, and Monaco is not usually a club that competes deep into the Champions League. They got to the semifinals that season, and he was 17, 18 years old. And He also broke Pele's record, yes, the the name in soccer, for youngest goal scorer in a World Cup final when when he helped France win the 2018 World Cup in Russia. So he's already accomplished, he's already like a legend of soccer, even though he's only been a star for four years. And just like Patrick Mahomes, literally, the comparison's perfect. He's Patrick Mahomes. And with Mbappe's explosive creativity, with his ingenuity of the game, He has the potential to really overtake them in the sense that he could could just elevate his club wherever he is. He currently plays for Paris Saint-Germain. That club has never won a Champions League title. And PSG was in the Champions League final this past August when they lost 1-0 to Bayern Munich, who was the best club in the world last season. And if he can help do that... And if and he'll probably go to Real Madrid, Barcelona, because that's where most of the great players get That's where Ronaldo, Messi faced off at for years. And if he can lead them to many Champions Leagues, uh, league titles, then Mbappe will put himself right up there. And he he does have good leadership, and he he's he's a very intense figure. He's Cristiano Ronaldo is probably the most polarizing athlete in the entire world. Messi's more of the quiet, subdued, like, guy. is like a mixture of both of them. And I also will say that Mbappe's childhood idol was Cristiano Ronaldo. And he also wears the same number that Ronaldo did. So he basically is Ronaldo without... Because Ronaldo is is a physical freak. He's very tall, very muscular, and he can win those headers. Mbappe is similar in the sense that he... Can, he, he's a prolific goal scorer. Messi is just great all around. That, that's why the debate's different. So Mbappe, he represents the, bulk, the best of Messi and Ronaldo. He's like, he has the potential to go down as like the player that like is, had the best aspects of both of them. He's that talented. And like I said, he's only 22 years old. That means that he could play in three or four more World Cups for France. Insanity.
0: Well, let's get, uh, get a little bit forward with the, with the predictions for this Champions League. What do you expect? What team do you expect to come out on top?
1: So last season, Bayern Munich won the sextuple, which they won all six tournaments and leagues that they competed in, all six. Uh, that would be the Champions League, the UEFA Super Cup, which is the Champions League and Europa League winners facing off. They won the Bundesliga. They won the German Cup. They also won the Club World Cup. And Champions League. So, six. Sextuplet. However, Bayern has looked a little shaky. On Monday, they drew 3-3 with the 16th place club in the Bundesliga in their 18 clubs. So, a little shaky. I think that Manchester City is the best club in Europe, which our Cameron Richardson is very happy about that because he is a diehard Man City fan. Man City is currently running away with the Premier League title. LK Gundawong, who is a former Borussia Dortmund player... Uh, has been on an absolute tear. He scored nine goals just in 2021 in the Premier League. He's been absolutely phenomenal for Man City. And with Man City has the best defense that they maybe have ever had in their club history. Man City is a club that's all about the attack and the attacking midfield, like the front-line attack and midfield. That's what they specialize in. But, they, but last transfer window back in August, they signed defender Ruben Diaz to anchor their back line, and he has given Man City an an elite backline that they've never really had, maybe not since 2012. That's the only other time that Man City had his backline as great as this. And with the fact that they actually have that solid backline and Ederson is one of the best goalkeepers in the world right now according to his current form, I don't really see anyone beating Man City. Man City has not ever won a Champions League because their defense is inconsistent. I don't see that happening this season. I think I think that every competition that Man City is in is theirs to lose.
0: All right, and then outside of the top-tier teams, who do you really expect to come out of nowhere to be kind of one of those surprise teams this year in the Champions League?
1: I think Sevilla is is definitely that. Sevilla signed a player named Papu Gomez who helped lead Atalanta to the Champions League quarterfinals last season. Atalanta almost beat PSG, but Neymar, uh, Brazilian superstar, helped PSG overcome So, Papu Gomez was signed for Sevilla. And Sevilla is always well rounded. They always have a good backline. They always have a good attack. They're always well managed. Sevilla won the Europa League last year and actually and, and was the club that Bayern Munich beat in the in the UEFA Super Cup. And Sevilla actually had the lead in that match before Bayern came back. Sevilla can play with anybody. They are while they're only fourth in their league, the three teams above them are Barcelona, Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid, three perennial powers. And Sevilla is well rounded and with Papu Gomez really elevating their attack, I can I think they're gonna be Dortmund, even though I'm a huge Dortmund fan personally. That would make me really sad, but I'm just saying how it is on radio. I think Sevilla beats Dortmund. And I think depending on who they play in the next round, as long as they don't play Bayern, Munich, or Man City, I think they have a good chance to get to the Champions League semifinals because I don't because there's a lot of clubs that just don't look as good as they usually are.
0: So we've got a ton of storylines for this Champions League. Make sure you guys tune in, catch a couple games. I mean, it's going to be stuff you don't want to miss. I mean, the emergence of Kylian Mbappe, Sevilla, and maybe their emergence as well this year, there's a ton of stuff that you guys can watch, and and it's going to be super interesting as far as Champions League goes. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about St. John's basketball and why they're a team to watch this year. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. We are joined by Sean Clark, the Candid Clark. Thank you for joining us today. We already talked a little bit about some Champions League. Now let's talk about some college basketball. You're writing an article here soon. It's going to be published in the next couple days. Uh, either today or tomorrow, about St. John's basketball. What do you see in St. John's basketball?
1: So you remember how last week I talked about USC and how they, they were great at rebounding and blocking shots. Uh, Evan Mobley is an absolute tower inside the paint, right? Well, while St. John's is the exact opposite. If you look at St. John's' lineup, their top three sco- leading scorers are all guards. Their their top forward averages four point eight rebounds per game. Julian Champagne is their is their starting shooting guard. And he's six foot eight. He's their leading rebounder by far. St. John's is completely guard dependent. You know a great comparison? And Kate, if you remember if you get this comparison, I will love this. Do you remember two thousand thirteen LaSalle? Um they were a thirteen seed in March Madness. Uh, and they made it to the Sweet 16.
0: Okay. Okay, sure.
1: Uh, So 2013, LaSalle, they were a team that had four really good guards and one small forward as their center. And LaSalle, they won in the first four. They beat 4C Kansas in the first round. Then they beat Marshall, Henderson, and Ole Miss in the second round to get to the Sweet 16. That's what St. John's kind of is this season. They... The, they have they have a bunch of really good guards with the regime: Don, Vince, Cole, Greg Williams Jr., Posh Alexander, and then obviously Julian Champagne. Julian Champagne, th- this guy is much watched. Nineteen point eight points per game, seven point three rebounds per game, and he he's a phenomenal player. And he scored twenty one points in Saint John's ninety. 90- 93 to 82 win over the Xavier Musketeers last night. And that was a huge win for St. John's because that helped elevate Xavier, sorry, St. John's into the tournament picture even more. They they didn't start out super well, but they've really picked things up as of late, allowing them to feel good about the tournament position. They beat Villanova a couple of weeks ago as well. So St. John's they're really on the rise and With their win over Xavier, I can see them being in the tournament. And considering that they're guard dominant, if they can go on a shooting tear, that's going to be terrifying. And I'll also say this. So remember what I said about USC last week. What are the two things to do best? Rebounds and block shots. You want to know what St. John's is in the top four? The two statistical categories that St. John's is in the top 40 in? Assists and steals. Literally, the like the, the opposite of rebounds and blocks. So Saint Saint John's is a team that they they excel in the perimeter, what just like USC excels inside, and it's really interesting in college basketball to have the this th- this basically this uh, polar opposite. And imagine if imagine Kate if Saint John's plays USC in the first round. How awesome would that be? You would have USC who focuses inside, and you have St. John's who focuses on the perimeter. That, that, that matchup needs to happen. I w- that, that would be the best game of the first round if that happens because it would be a complete battle of strength, unlike anywhere else in college basketball. And St. John's is a just a very fun team to watch. They're amazing in transition.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to talk a little bit more about Julian Champagne because he is a modern NBA player. I mean, this is exactly the type of player that we see in the NBA, all kinds. He's a six foot eight guard who really thrives from the outside. He thrives from the three point line and he's been, I mean, a great shooter this year, 42% for Champagne on 119 shots. He's been phenomenal, but this team has been consistently shooting pretty well from the three point line. They've been consistently good passers. I mean, uh, whether it's Posh Alexander or if it's Rashim Dunn, they have great passers on this team. This is a team that I think could really take to a team like USC uh, because, I mean, the, the matchup there is, like you said, incredible. You've got the size of the Mobleys at USC, and you've got the strength from the outside and the strength from the smaller guard play at St. John's. And the reason I like a matchup, including smaller guard play for St. John's in in terms of a USC is because they have a guy who's capable and big enough to to play decent interior defense. I mean, Champagne is averaging more than a block a game, but they also have Isaiah Moore who's 6 foot 10. He gets some good minutes. So I'm excited to see what this St. John's team can do because they really are a pretty well-rounded team. I know that Isaiah Moore is not going to put up big numbers. He's not going to get a bunch of rebounds per game. He's just not that type of player. But they have those opportunities, and in a matchup with a team like USC, if you can just take off and start hitting three-point shots early on, I mean, how can you chip that away with only getting two-point shots like USC has thrived on?
1: Exactly. And another thing I want to point out about St. John's, you mentioned consistency. Like, while they started the season poorly, they've really started to find a groove. And unlike a lot of college basketball teams where they mainly just play the same five guys the entire game, St. John's is deep. You have bas Basically, just just listing off like their dependable players: Julian Champagne, Posh Alexander, Greg Williams Jr., Isaiah Moore, Vince Culverson, Dunn, and Marcus Erlington. That that right there are eight players that can be dependent on. And obviously, there's only five starters. Mar- Marcellus Erlington last night against Xavier had over 15 points in, in their 93 to 82 win. St. John's has a good bench. They if obviously Julian Champagne is by far their leading score he has 19.8 points compared to 11.7 for posh Alexander but the fact that they have so many other players that can step up on a given night not many teams can have that and i have to say cade that this big east tournament and just big east in general most the last few seasons i i've always focused zeroed in on the big east when it comes to conference tournaments i've always zeroed in on the big east because Big East always just has so many fun teams to watch, and especially this season, there's like about five or six teams that'll make March Madness at least, and with UConn being in the Big East, that makes it even better. So, St. John's is another reason why the Big East is the must-watch conference in college basketball. I get the Big Ten has a lot of ranked teams. I I get that. Not not yours, unfortunately. Not my team. Yeah, not yours, but... (laughs) Big Ten is low, but here's the thing: you already kind of know like what you're going to get out of most of those teams, and the hierarchy's starting to become more and more clear. But Big East, it's a it's a mess. The Big East is an absolute mess, and because you're seeing, because there's no dominant team, and you're and you're seeing a bunch of confusing results.
0: Well, yeah, and I, I'm going to say something. I think why the Big East has started to to move in such a good direction as far as college basketball goes, and I got to say it's all thanks to Villanova. Villanova brought a program, and they've been a good program for a long time, but they've really become one of the better programs in college basketball. And when Villanova started to compete with not just the Big East, but the rest of the big powerhouse schools, Kentucky, Kansas, Michigan State, those type of guys, it made more of a need and more of a necessity for players to go to the Big East. I mean, if you take, a, take an opportunity to go to St. John's, you play Villanova twice a year. I mean, that's big time. You get your eyes in the spotlight. So the recruiting for the Big East has, I think, really gone up because of the improvements from Villanova.
1: You're exactly right. Villanova, they've been the best team in college basketball the last five years consistently. And that's given rise to a lot of other really good programs in the Big East. Um, You have Xavier and Creighton. They're both really good teams this season. And you have... And, and you also have UConn. UConn is a even though they've been on tough times the last few years, that that program won four national titles in sixteen years. That's really impressive. And be, with that, you have so many competitive teams in the Big East. Even teams like Providence, who are struggling this season, they're still competitive. So when I look at the Big East, and especially Saint John, Saint John's epitomizes what's great about the Big East and how their must watch every year. And I've, and I've talked about Creighton before on the can of Clark that that team returning almost all their players from last season, with the exception of Denzel Mahoney. And they look really good too. Uh, Zigorowski just won biggies player of the week. And I really like what I see from them too. So St. John's Creighton, I would love to see that in the Big East tournament.
0: Yeah. And we've talked about Creighton on the show before. I, I don't think this semester, but we've talked about it on, uh, on previous shows. And, they were a team that really could have got going last last year. Come tournament time, obviously, tournament was canceled due to COVID. But this is a, a team to watch. They didn't really lose too many players. There's not too much turnover for this roster. They're pretty good.
1: Yeah, and I just gotta quickly say a sentimental thing. Like we talked about Creighton and St. John's. That was the last college basketball game we saw before it got canceled. It was, mm-hmm. it, was it was on in the NYC TV room, and it was in ha- the. Madison Square Garden was empty, and they called the game at halftime in what was a pretty sobering morning. So seeing Creighton and St. John's play in the Big East tournament would, would just prove like how far we've come in the last year. It would be a great representation.
0: Yeah, it was the first game in the Big East tournament, Creighton versus St. John's, and Creighton was the big-time favorite, and St. John's came off to a big-time halftime lead before the game got ultimately called. got shut down. Uh, but, that, yeah, I mean, just a, that's how the college season ended. That's how the entire college basketball season ended last year was with Creighton and St. John's. So I I agree. I think that would be such a a great matchup to see again this year. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some NFL topics. Sean posted an article kind of reviewing and looking back on the NFL this season. We're going to go through some of those topics that he wrote about. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports. And We are joined by Sean Clark here today. And Sean Clark and I have talked about Champions League. We've talked a little bit about St. John's basketball. Now we're going to move and talk a little bit more about the NFL. There's a An article Sean posted, kind of recapping, reviewing, looking back at the NFL season. So I want to talk about some of those points. To start off, I want to talk about Kevin Stefanski. Now, when the Browns hired Kevin Stefanski, I wasn't sure. And you said this was a really good hiring. You were confident in Kevin Stefanski. Why were you so confident in Stefanski? Obviously, he's proven to be a good head coach for the Browns. He got them to the playoffs for the first time in who knows how long. So why was Kevin Stefanski such a good choice in
1: your eyes? Well, I would say he's been more than good. He's easily the best coach they've had since Bill Belichick back in 1995. The reason why I knew Kevin Stefanski was going to work is because I loved what he did with the Minnesota Vikings in 2019. He emphasized Dalvin Cook in the running game, which took the pressure off Kirk Cousins. And when that happened, oh, uh, the Vikings, they, they won a playoff game at the Saints. Yes, they got wrecked by San Francisco, but that's only because that was literally the worst possible match that Minnesota could have possibly had. Minnesota's offensive line has not been very good the last few years, and San Francisco had their entire defense healthy. They had no chance. They had no chance. And Kevin Stefanski brought out the best of the Minnesota Vikings. So with Cleveland, I thought, okay, he's going to emphasize Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. He's going to... He's going to allow Baker Mayfield to be more of a game manager, but, like, a better game manager, not quite like Blake Bortles was, but more like, you know, like he used the talent on, on the play action. And because Kevin Stefanski is such a good offensive mind and play caller, I knew that he was going to make this Cleveland Browns offense tick. Also, Stefanski at Minnesota, even though he was only a coordinator, he seemed to be a no-nonsense uh, disciplinary coach. And the Cleveland Browns needed that. I will never forget... They had nearly 20 penalties in their season opener in 2019 against the Titans. They had nearly 20. They had they had almost 200 penalty yards. I'll never forget that because I was so astounded. Like, wow, this Browns team's a mess. They're so undisciplined. Well, guess what? Kevin Stefanski is incredibly disciplined, and because of how great of an offensive mind he is, I knew that he would work well at Cleveland. I didn't think that Cleveland Browns were going to be. You know, they almost beat the Chiefs in the divisional playoff round. I wasn't quite expecting that much of an improvement, but Stefanski is is already proven to be one of the best coaches in the NFL. The fact that you made a Cleveland Browns team so respectable is incredible.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk about how difficult of a transition this had to have been for Kevin Stefanski. I mean, Freddie Kitchens left this team uncoached, undisciplined. I mean, this team was not an NFL team. They didn't look like an NFL team. They just weren't coached up to be as as strict and really as as in tune as, as Kevin Stefanski has made them. So I think that transition that he had was a super tough transition, and he made the most out of it. I mean, Baker Mayfield was was already having some issues in his career. People were saying, maybe this guy's not as good as we think when the season was beginning. And I think those questions aren't really there anymore. I think we can all look at Baker Mayfield and say, yeah, he's a good starting quarterback. And I think Kevin Stefanski has a lot to do with that.
1: Kate, if I were to tell you two years ago that the, that the Cleveland Browns would be one of the most respectable like franchises in the NFL the way, the way they are now, would you believe me?
0: Absolutely not.
1: Absolutely not. No one would believe you. But that's what the Cleveland Browns are. The Cleveland Browns were one th- third and 14 stop away from the AFC title game this season. If they had just stopped the Chiefs on third and 14 in their divisional playoff game, Browns would have gotten the ball back, and they could have j- drove down the field and won the game. The Cle- yeah, Cleveland was doing a conference title game three years after going 0-16. The, and a year after going 6-10 and in the most penalized team in the NFL that that is one of the most remarkable turnarounds i've ever seen it, it it's not quite as drastic as the 1999 st louis rams going from 4 and 12 5 and 11 to winning the super bowl that, that, that's still the most drastic of all time but the fact that they were able to go from 6 and 10 and so undisciplined to oh wait a minute 11 and 5 they won at wait a minute they actually beat the steelers on the road in the playoffs what and then they they played a really good game against the chiefs that that's remarkable and kevin stefanski deserved coach of the year and yeah it was tough he had to clean up a bunch of discipline he had to calm a bunch of hotheads in the locker room and he did this with his first nfl head coaching job that like like the, the, this this guy is unbelievable seriously
0: yeah and it, it it isn't all on kevin stefanski i think the browns have have been moving in the right direction, at least as far as who their uh, who their general manager is and what kind of direction he's been going. And obviously, uh, the head coaching uh, situation was was a big concern. Hugh Jackson wasn't wasn't the guy. Freddie Kitchens clearly wasn't the guy. But let's talk about the job that Andrew Barry has done for this Cleveland Browns team. He's really built up a. A, a, a decent group. He's surrounded Baker Mayfield with a good offensive line and really some talented tight ends and some pretty good weapons. So what do you think about the job he's
1: done? The thing the thing about that is he has done a great job supporting Kevin Stefanski. He gave the Browns one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. And because of how good the offensive line is, the Cleveland Browns have been able to run the ball so well, and that's what suits Kevin Stefanski's play calling the best. Also bringing in a bunch of tight ends, gave Baker Mayfield more reliable weapons and more run blocking, which, hey, that's always good. More run blocking always works. And remember when Cleveland, they didn't have any of their wide receivers against the New York Jets B-16. Yes, they still lost the game, but, but because he brought in all these tight ends, Baker Mayfield still had some targets to throw to and The Browns were at least competitive in that game. And the Jets, I don't know why they were trying to win the game. It still perplexes me. But hey, the Cleveland Browns have a lot of town offense. Here's the issue, though, their secondary is atrocious. they 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 the bat the, the line core, and the secondary, is very shaky. And that was exposed in the first half against uh, the Chiefs when they trailed 19 to three at halftime. Yes, I know about I know about the touchback. Everyone hates that play, but I don't I didn't. Yeah, whatever it, it happened. But if Cleveland can just fix some of their secondary and linebacking issues. Their defense could become mediocre, which is I all you really need to be, with how good the Browns' offense is.
0: Well, yeah, and they have some talented players on that team, some talented players on that defense, uh, but the safety unit for them is just so Yikes. atrocious. Andrew Sandejo played very poorly this season, and the Cleveland Browns fans they they wanted him gone as soon as the season started. That was a that was something that they wanted continually so yeah they did a lot with uh with I mean trying to take this roster turning it over over this year I think it's going to take a little more time but I think this Browns team is moving in the right direction so let's talk about another topic that you had uh in your article talking about the general manager uh Bill Belichick and how Bill Belichick has struggled as a general manager at least these last
1: few years can you talk
0: about that a little bit
1: all right listen it's a tough subject for me talking about as a Patriots fan. Um, all right, listen. The Patriot Bill Belichick is the greatest head coach of all time. The greatest. I don't. Th- I don't think there's any doubt about that. He is the greatest head coach of all time. But my gosh, he he Bill Belichick, the general manager, there's a lot to be desired because Bill Belichick has not ever drafted a Pro Bowl wide receiver in the first round ever. In his tenure with the Patriots. Yes, they had Randy Moss, Wes Welker, Dante Stallworth, 2007. They've had Julian Edelman, but none of these guys were first-round draft picks. Remember how much Nikhil Harry struggled the past two seasons. That was, that's looking like an epic bust. The Patriots do not know how to draft receivers. Bill Belichick does not understand how to support the roster with talent and playmakers I am a like I lived this Patriots dynasty. Okay, I basically lived it out starting with 2006. Okay, I can tell you, Kate Reed, that this was that this was more Brady than Belichick with all their success, especially from 2007 to 2017. That was primarily Brady. I I watched every game that entire 11 year stretch, and I can tell you that it was primarily Brady because Brady was elevating his guys. Patriots one time went into a season with Kenbrell Tompkins, Aaron Dobson, Danny Amendola's Julian Edelman's their only pass catchers. That was 2013. That's it. Julian Edelman was not was never a starter before that season. Danny Amendola was an often injured slot receiver in St. Louis. And, and the other two guys I mentioned were rookie wide receivers. That's all Tom Brady had coming into a season, and the Patriots were still in the conference title game that season. Tom Brady was just that great. And Bill Belichick, he's stubborn. He's all about the Patriot way. He does this every season. He forces players to take pay cuts to return because teams don't want to give them the money that the players desire. So, like, they'll just take less money to return so they can win championships. Bill Belichick struggles with surrounding players of talent. Why do you think Tom Brady went for Tampa Bay, a team that has had a bunch of wide receivers, but they haven't had a good quarterback to throw to any of them? Tom Brady saw Tampa Bay, like, oh, wow, Mike Evans is really good. Ooh, Chris Godwin's really nice. Ooh, OJ Howard and Cameron Braid are good tight ends. I think I'm gonna go there because it's better than anything I have here in New England. So Belichick, he does know how to draft defense. I will give him that. And the Patriots and the fact that the Patriots even won seven games at all this season is quite remarkable the more you think about it. Because their offense was dreadful. Every time I every time I wrote about every time I watched the Patriots, I'm like, okay, are we gonna gain a are we gonna gain a yard through the air? Like I, I legitimately want to know, are we gonna gain a yard through the air all game? Because there were some games where we didn't even gain hundred. Like And we still want. I don't know how. So Belichick, I really wish he would step aside as the GM, let someone else come in and rebuild the roster to where the next quarterback, I'm hoping Mac Jones, can come in and take the Patriots into the next era because what happened this past season, I don't want to see that again. That was... This this past season was disgusting to watch outside of being the Ravens.
0: So, assuming that Bill Belichick keeps his role as the general manager, what is the path going forward? How do they need to get better and back to where they were when it was Tom Brady and Bill Belichick?
1: So, what there there are a couple things I would recommend. First of all, trade Stefan Gilmore. Please trade him. He's expensive. He's also an all-pro corner. He, you're going to get a lot for Stephon Gilmore. You're probably even going to get a first-round pick for him. There are a lot of teams in the NFL that would trade a first-round pick for an all-pro caliber corner. Would you agree with that, Cade Reed?
0: Yeah. No, I think there's some good value for Gilmore out there on the market.
1: There is. You can get draft capital, maybe even more than just a first-round pick, and you can get Stephon Gilmore's contracts out the books because you have J.C. Jackson, you have Jason McCourty, and you have and you have Miles Bryant who had who had an interception for the Patriots in Week 14 against the Rams this past season. So you have you have all these players. You also have Devin McCourty and you also have Patrick Chung who's going to come back after he opted out last season. Patriots are good defensively. You don't need Stephon Gilmore. Just trade him. J.C. Jackson could be your number one corner. The guy had the guy had almost 10 interceptions last season, and he, he he's been absolutely remarkable. And the Patriots have talent on defense. The problem is they don't have much of a pass rush. Kid do you know do you know who the Patriots leading sacker was last season, Cameron? I mean sorry, Cade.
0: Um I don't know who the Patriots leading sacker was.
1: Chase Vinovich.
0: Rookie. Or second year. Second year. Yeah.
1: And then Adam Butler was second.
0: Yeah, the, not great.
1: Yeah, and Chase Vinovich had six and a half sacks, if I remember correctly.
0: All right, that's a good performance, at least. I mean, it could be could be worse, but yeah, I get what you're saying. Six and a half sacks yeah. is your leading sacker. The, Actually, make that five and a half sacks. Uh, Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the pass rush wasn't there.
1: Five and a half, and Adam Butler had four, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, not very good. The Patriots were almost... Quarterbacks looked way too comfortable against the Patriots. I mean... I was used to that during the Tom Brady era anyways, but when you don't have the offense to make up for, that was very frustrating. I'm like, guys, come on. Also, looking at the offense, oh my. The, the, I don't think there's a team that has a worse receiving core than the than the Patriots. At least the Jets had Jamison Crowder. Because I think Jamison Crowder is a very good receiver. Not a number one, but Jamison, Jamison Crowder is, is a better receiver than anyone the Patriots had on their roster last season. You're telling me that Jacoby Myers was the best receiver for the that guy's a number three slot receiver in the nfl okay like come on the only, the only reason he led the receivers because cam needed someone to throw to and, de- and
0: edelman got hurt
1: and edelman yeah edelman did get hurt but even when edelman played he wasn't very good there that that monday evening game against the chiefs he just like he just let a duck of a pass go right through his hands for a pick six yeah Joe and edelman in my opinion is just not nowhere near the same player he used to be so their wide receiver core is bad. Also, their offensive line is very mediocre. It wasn't terrible, but it could have been so much better. I mean, the running game looks solid, but they need to build up the trenches. Please, please, for the love of whatever you want to, whatever word you want to throw in in there, get some wide receivers that can catch. This wide receiver free agent class is loaded, loaded. Get. Go get Juju Smith Schuster. I'm good with that. Go get Juju Smith Schuster. Okay. I don't think Allen Robinson's gonna happen. I feel like Allen Robinson's gonna go to Green Bay. I don't think there's a better fit in, in free agency than Allen Robinson and the Packers. But we can talk about that another time. But go, go 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 get wide receivers. Just 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 go go get wide receivers, please. I'm I I'm tired of I'm sorry seeing Jacoby Myers being the number one receiver. That guy. Uh, no disrespect to Jacoby Myers. I, I like Jacoby Myers, but number one. Uh, no.
0: Yeah. And I've talked about, I haven't talked much about the Patriots on the show, but I've talked a ton about the Philadelphia Eagles and how big of a struggle it's been for Carson Wentz, because I think the offensive line for the, for the Patriots is better than the Eagles, but the wide receiver course for both of these teams, I mean, it just doesn't give the quarterback any options. And when you're not left with any options, you're stuck in a box. And for Cam Newton, I feel bad for him because he came back, he, he took a deal with the Patriots and He looked not awful. I mean, he didn't pass the ball super well, but when you're looking at the options he has, how's he going to find an option? I mean, he ran the ball extremely well for for what he does. 12 touchdowns, 600 yards, just about. I I think Cam Newton deserves another chance with an actual wide receiver corpse.
1: My only issue with that is that, like, as someone who watched Patriot games as closely as I did, Cam Newton just just... His throwing motion just looks off. It it looked like he was laboring to throw a five yard pass. Me, mm-hmm. I think that Cam Newton would be should get a backup role. I, I I don't think he's a star anymore. I think that his throwing motion is so like rigid and unfluid. It's just it's not good to look at, and it's not consistently effective. And I, I just he can't really throw a ball accurately beyond ten yards. So. That's why I don't really agree with that. I think he'd be a I think he'd be a good backup. Personally, I think that a a good backup role would be would be the Seahawks because Russell Wilson has started to get some injury problems. It seemed like the second half of last season he was injured. Uh so so I think Cam Newton would be a great backup for Russell Wilson and Cam Newton can get some rest, but I just don't think he's a starter anymore.
0: I will say I think he's going to have one more opportunity to start this year. Um for me, I think the football team makes the most sense. Uh, Ron Rivera and Cam Newton already have a relationship. They've already seen a ton of success together. And uh, there's been a couple rumors that the Washington football team may be interested in offering Cam Newton a contract. So I think that could be a decent fit for him. I mean, they have a decent offensive line. Their wide receiver corpse isn't great, but they do have a true number one receiver in Terry McLaurin and who knows what they're going to do this offseason as well. There's going to be a ton of teams looking for receivers. I mean, name a team, and they're probably going to be looking at, to offer one of those receivers a, a contract this year. It's just it's that type of year. Quarterbacks and wide receivers are at the top of everybody's to-do list, everybody's need list. And Washington football team, the New England Patriots, the Philadelphia Eagles, all those teams could use another wide receiver. Uh, but before we go on to break, I want to talk a little bit about how the NFL dealt with the whole COVID situation. Uh, We've kind of talked about and we've seen in the news, like there's been some issues. College football was a disaster. College basketball has had some issues. The NBA has had some issues. But the NFL came out relatively clean. Obviously, there was a few circumstances where games had to be moved around. Players couldn't play. But in your opinion, what was the response for the NFL this year on the COVID protocol? Was it good or bad?
1: It wasn't perfect. I think when it comes to COVID protocol, I think the league that did it the best was the Premier League. The Premier League returned in mid June this past summer and they played through late July and they went weeks without a single positive case. I think the Premier League, I, Project Restart in the Premier League, where they finished the 2019 20, 20 season, that was the best. That was the quintessence of how you handle COVID. And that that's the prime example I pointed to. And Project Restart was extremely entertaining. The Premier League. So with that in mind, I went to the NFL scene hoping the NFL would do the same thing. And here's the thing: they didn't. They didn't like, you know, create a bubble or anything, which a lot of people wanted them to. Which I'm glad they didn't in the end. And you know, the NFL had like limited capacity for a lot of stadiums. Uh, fans started to come back toward the end of the season, and 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 the NFL was like, hey, uh, wear your masks in all the meetings. Uh, do social distancing maneuvers, and if you don't, you're gonna get penalized for it. The Las Vegas Raiders and the Tennessee Titans each got in trouble for that, like on un- prompt unscheduled workouts, which you can't do during COVID for obvious reasons. And Las Vegas, well, th- th- they're in Vegas. Okay, do I really need to explain that? No. And here's the thing: they in the NFL, they they were not they were not lenient. If you're not wearing your mask and following protocols, you're gonna get punished. Everyone's mad at the NFL about the Denver Broncos not having a quarterback. I'm sorry. That's on the Broncos. Wear your masks during your meetings and then maybe the NFL would have let some of your quarterbacks played. Okay? It's not that hard. Stop blaming the NFL for everything. I know people love their agendas, but stop. Okay? That was clearly on the Broncos, and that produced probably the worst football game I have ever seen in my entire life. That, that was just terrible. Thank God they weren't playing like a division rival or something, because that would have been really bad. But the NFL, they, they had these protocols, and they worked. And I love how the NFL moved games around. We've, we had a couple Tuesday night football games. We had the Bills and Titans play on a Tuesday evening. That was really weird. We had the Ravens and Cowboys play on Tuesday. We had multiple Monday evening games. We even had a Wednesday afternoon game, which that was weird, but they had to do that. I love how the NFL moved around their schedule. And here's the thing. I actually wrote a column on this for the site. I think that Thursday night football game should be removed, and that Monday should have should be a doubleheader each week, because there were four different times this season where you had a game on Monday before or during Monday night football. Four times that that happened, and I'll I'll say a couple of those games: Washington beating Pittsburgh, that was the first time Pittsburgh lost this season. Chiefs playing the Bills in a in a preview of the AFC title game. Monday Monday evening, I think, is a great time for football. Having two games on a Monday is great because. Thursday night football is just too short a time. So with the NFL moving the schedule on, I thought they did a fantastic job. The NFL had 269 games to do. Not one of them got canceled. I think just with that stat alone proves that the NFL knew what they were doing, and we considering there are 53 players on each roster, that's phenomenal.
0: Well, yeah, and that was really the big reason why they couldn't do a bubble. 53 people on each roster trying to get every single one of those 50 times, 30. I'm not going to do the math in my head, but you guys can understand that's a big number uh, trying to force into a bubble. So I, I, I agree. I think the the NFL did a good job. Obviously, the Denver Broncos game against the Saints wasn't exactly what we were hoping for, wasn't what we wanted to see. And poor Kendall Hinton. I mean, poor guy was just not ready to be a quarterback. I mean, he's a wide receiver. You can't expect too much out of On the of him. practice
1: squad, he wasn't even playing in the real games.
0: Exactly. So he didn't even have the the exact knowledge of the whole playbook, everything like that, 13 total yards for the poor guy. I mean, it could have been worse, uh, but this is exactly why the NFL was right. I mean, you put in Drew Locke, you keep the quarterback the way it is, and you're allowing somebody who had a close contact to another person who tested positive to go into the game. I mean, it's as simple as wear your mask and you don't have to do that. It's on the Broncos. I I 100% agree it's on the quarterbacks in that Broncos quarterback room. It's not on the NFL. We're going to take a quick break. When I come back, we've got a lot to talk about. Thank you very much, Sean, for coming in today. We're going to see you again next Wednesday. We'll be talking about the different articles that you post on your website, on Twitter as well. So make sure to follow Sean at theCandidClark on Twitter, and make sure to check out his website at theCandidClark. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, the NFL franchise tag needs major change. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports. Thank you very much to Sean Clark for coming in during that first hour talking about some Champions League, some St. John's basketball, and a couple NFL topics as well. I'm going to jump into the next topic now, now that Sean is gone. The NFL franchise tag has a major flaw and it's, it's going to be a problem for many, many years to come unless something is done about this franchise tag. So if you don't know what the franchise tag is, it's a little bit difficult to explain. So if a team and a player can't come to a long term negotiation while a player is about to go into free agency, you, the team has the option to give them the franchise tag. Now, what the franchise tag would do would pay this player above the league average and a pretty sizable amount to play a single year with the team. Now, the franchise tag was put in place and created so teams who had players for a long time could hash out long-term agreements over a shorter period of time without having the fear that these players would sign elsewhere in free agency. This was the point of the franchise tag. It was to help the players and the teams get to long-term agreements but the problem with that was the players and the teams were really different on their evaluations of what the contracts should be so teams that thought hey we want to pay you this much if they didn't really have that number that the player wanted obviously they're not going to sign that contract and because of this these numbers were pretty far off for a lot of these players who were being put on the franchise tag so this became a problem Because instead of using this to try to find long term situations, instead of letting them go into free agency when they can't get to that long term agreement, they decide to put the franchise tag on them, which basically says you don't have a choice. You have to play for us. You don't have to sign the contract, but you're going to still have to play for us. You don't have a choice. And this is clearly, I think, flawed. I think there's a lot of clear problems with the franchise tag and it's right in front of our eyes the team has way too much power when it comes to the franchise tag and players who don't want to be franchise tagged, players who don't want to sign long-term extensions with this team and just want to hit free agency they don't have that opportunity and because the way the franchise tag works teams can use it up to three different times on a single player and because of that well a player could be stuck in a situation for a super long time Now, this power dynamic, it just doesn't work. With the players having no power in in any say in their own contract, it doesn't really make any sense at all. And teams are going to use this on the best players on the team to try to keep them for another year. But it's really made... bring in and keep younger players on those rosters and get them to long-term extensions and then for the players who do play on that franchise tag it has a very specific purpose its specific purpose is to give those players an opportunity to showcase what they have so they can get that long-term security in the nfl long-term security is the most important thing because these players don't know when their career could potentially just end because of an injury, and the injury risk inside the NFL is really outmatched by a ton of other sports, and the long-term effects that the NFL provides, and the long-term effects that those hits that those players are taking have is is extreme. I mean, we are watching players who are having brain issues for the entire rest of their life after football because of these concussions, because of CTE, and that's before I talk about any of the knee knees that get torn up in football, the ankles, the Achilles, the shoulders. I mean, after you get done with the NFL, you are in pretty rough shape physically if you have a long career. So for players, having long term contracts and having a four year, three plus year contract really gives them a ton of motivation to continue to play. And it gives them security if they can't find employment after football. Because if you have all these concussion issues, if you have CTE, it's going to be tough to get a job. It's going to be tough to keep a job. And we've seen that with a ton of NFL players. There's also a big problem with the CTE and how players are being rewarded money. But that's a topic for another day. We'll talk about another time. But for the NFL franchise tag, this is putting a stranglehold on the players. And let's talk about an example of this and when this has really done a player wrong. A few years ago, the Pittsburgh Steelers put a franchise tag on Le'Veon Bell. And Le'Veon Bell did not want to play under the franchise tag. The reason being is the franchise tag is going to give you more money in the first year than a traditional contract would. For Le'Veon Bell, he wanted about a $10 million per year contract over four years. But for the Steelers, they didn't want to go and extend him long term. They didn't want to make that long term investment. So they put him under the franchise tag. And yes, this franchise tag does give Le'Veon Bell a little bit more money than he would have expected, but if he didn't want to play under the franchise tag, he didn't get a choice. He either, he had two options. It was either play under the franchise tag, which was a contract that he didn't sign, and it was a risk for him because what happens if Le'Veon Bell went out during that franchise tag season and tore his ACL and was never able to recover? I mean, if something like that happens, you really have to look at this and what would happen to Lev Bell? If his career ends on one play during that franchise tag year, of course, he's not going to get a long term contract. Of course, he's not going to get the long term security that he was looking for. So he sat the season out, which we're seeing and it's becoming more and more common in the NFL. And that's a big time issue as well. We don't want to see superstars in the NFL sit out because of contract negotiations going south. Le'Veon Bell missing that season hurt everybody involved, not just Le'Veon Bell. Nobody wanted to watch the Pittsburgh Steelers without Le'Veon Bell. They were a different team. And James Conner's good, but he's not the same running back as Lev Bell. So when Le'Veon Bell was forced into this franchise tag, I had so much respect for him when he decided to sit that season out. And it may have hurt his career in the future. He's taken a little bit of a step backwards, but he did get that long-term contract that he was looking for, he did have that security. Now let's talk about a more modern problem with the franchise tag. Dak Prescott has yet to get a long-term deal so far in his career. And let's keep in mind why that's such a big deal. If you're the number one overall draft pick, you get a pretty sizable contract to start out your career. It's a multi-year deal with over $7 million per year. Pretty good. But for Dak Prescott, he was drafted in the fourth round. And fourth-round players have a much, much lower contract that isn't necessarily guaranteed. So he went through that four-year contract with the Dallas Cowboys and got paid basically nothing. And for Dak Prescott, he deserved way more than basically nothing. He was a franchise quarterback. He's proven himself to be a great starting quarterback in the NFL. But for the franchise tag to come in, it really put Dak Prescott in a tough situation. Dak Prescott was franchise tagged that next year instead of them coming to a long-term agreement, Even though there were some offers on the table from both sides, they couldn't come to that agreement. So Dak Prescott took the franchise tag and he was hoping that he would be be able to get a long-term extension figured out with the Cowboys during the season at some point. And it was going to have to be his play that proved that he could earn that contract. That's just the stipulations that the Dallas Cowboys put on him. So when he played this season, he ended up getting hurt. He fractured his ankle and he went down with a season-ending injury. And this is the scary part about the franchise tag. Now, Dak Prescott is talented enough that he's going to be able to bounce back. And as far as I know, Dak Prescott's ankle is going to be able to get back to the place that it was. So he's not going to end his career on this hit. And it's not going to be a game-changing hit for him or a life-changing hit for him. At least at this point, I don't think so. So for Dak Prescott, he's pretty lucky that this wasn't a career ending injury because if Dak Prescott took that year he went for the franchise tag which paid him a decent sum of 31 million dollars which isn't what he was looking for he's looking for more long-term security but he got paid 31 million dollars and he went down with that injury if that would have been a career ending injury that would have been the last contract that Dak Prescott would have gotten with the NFL and yes, $31 million is a ton of money, and you can expand that over your entire lifetime, but for players who have to risk their bodies and put their entire career and their love of the game on the line, it's just not what you want to see. So now Dak Prescott is in another situation where he still wants a long-term deal, and the Dallas Cowboys have no indication that they want to give him that. Now, if they do end up coming to terms, I'd be a little surprised because Dak Prescott is asking for a little bit more money than the Dallas Cowboys can really afford. But for the Cowboys, they have all the power in this situation with Dak Prescott. Even though Dak Prescott has proven himself to be a franchise quarterback, even though he has proven himself to be capable of taking a franchise and, and leading them, the Dallas Cowboys are still going to put a franchise tag on him even if he doesn't get to that deal. So if they if they can't come to an extension, if they can't come to a deal, the Dallas Cowboys are going to put that franchise tag on him, and Dak Prescott will have no choice but to either play and risk getting injured and having no long-term security once again, or he could sit out the season, which is another bad situation. We never want to see players sit out the season. We never want to see players and 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 have them sit it out a season in their prime. I mean, it's just missing what they could have become, the greatness that they could be. So I never want to see a player like Dak Prescott taking a seat and, and losing their season. But if that's what's best for him, if that's what's gonna get him out of this salary caps or this franchise tag situation that he has found himself in, it might be the right move. But the big problem is the franchise tag itself. The teams are abusing the franchise tag. They're using it to take control of the players and take control of their destiny. But for the, t- or for the players, they have no opportunity to really solve that issue. They can't really have that freedom to find their own team and to find where they want to play under their own terms. And that's the situation Dak Prescott finds himself in. Now, I think this is going to be a continual problem until the franchise tag is either completely changed or with- withdrawn and removed completely. There's got to be some sort of remedy to this franchise tag. And for me, I think it has to be something that you sign. If you don't want to sign a franchise tag, you don't have to sign it. That's, I think that has to be a key part of the franchise tag. Making somebody sign a contract and, and making them play for a team that they don't want to play for, I just don't think that's fair to the player. It just puts the teams in complete control. And that's going to do it for my subject on the franchise tag. I'm going to take a quick break When I come back, there might be another team looking for a starting quarterback in the NFL. Stay tuned. The Pittsburgh Steelers have found themselves in a situation where they're not quite sure who their starting quarterback is going to be next season. Thank you very much for tuning in to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, the Pittsburgh Steelers general manager, Kevin Colbert, came out and said, as we sit here today, and this is a direct quote from Colbert, uh, quote-unquote, as we sit here today, Ben is a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He reiterated to us that he wants to continue to play We told him we have to look at this current situation. So let's break down what this means, what Kevin Colbert is saying about Ben Roethlisberger and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Basically, Colbert is saying Ben Roethlisberger is a Pittsburgh Steeler right now. He's saying that there's no guarantee that Ben Roethlisberger is going to be a Pittsburgh Steeler come regular season. And that's a big deal. He reiterated to Ben Roethlisberger that this is the current situation and they have to take a look and evaluate all their options. Now, this is important because Ben Roethlisberger has said that he does want to potentially play again this season or he does want to play again this season and he wants to potentially take a pay cut if he does play. Now, the Steelers are $19 million in the salary cap and they have a couple of options. Now, the first option is they continue on with Ben Roethlisberger. There's no guarantee the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to make another decision at quarterback. As of right now, Ben Roethlisberger is still the quarterback for the Steelers. But this could change in the near future. With the uncertainty at this quarterback position, especially this offseason, the Pittsburgh Steelers could be evaluating what their options are. Because for Ben Roethlisberger, having him as the starting quarterback might be good. He is an okay starting quarterback at this point in his career. He's getting old. He's aging. But can he really be the difference maker in a Super Bowl? Was that team really qualified to competing in the Super Bowl or were they ever going to make an opportunity or a run at that point with Big Ben as their quarterback? Well, I don't think so. I don't think Big Ben moves the Super Bowl needle in either direction for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And for a team that doesn't have salary cap and doesn't have the ability to invest in this season, keeping Ben Roethlisberger really doesn't make too much sense. Now, if the Pittsburgh Steelers do decide to cut Ben Roethlisberger, which would be a little bit of a tough decision for the Steelers. I mean, this is their franchise guy. He's been there for a long, long time. This is his home too. But if they do decide to cut him, which I think is probably the best option for this team, they're going to save $19 million in cap space and that's a significant amount of money because that actually puts them right about even with where they could be with their cap space now if they end up going down that direction which i think is the right direction big ben could decide to retire or he could decide to take his contract and make the money that he was that he signed up for i mean it's up to big ben roethlisberger what he wants to do Because if the Steelers cut him, they're still going to have some dead cap on the books. They're still going to have a tough cap situation where they're paying Ben Roethlisberger, even though he's not playing. If they bench him, he might not ever change his price tag. He might not go into a negotiation and say, hey, we'll take less money and play this year as a starting quarterback. If he's a bench quarterback, that might not be the same case. But we don't really know what the plan is for Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, if he doesn't get the job in Pittsburgh, if he isn't the starting quarterback in Pittsburgh and they decide to either draft a quarterback, sign a quarterback, trade for a quarterback, or run with one of the quarterbacks that they have now not named Ben Roethlisberger, we don't know what Ben Roethlisberger is going to do. Is he going to try to continue his career, go for another season like Phillip Rivers did on another team, or is he going to retire and just take it as it is? Understand that the Steelers aren't going to start you, and this is the end of the line. I've been talking about Ben Roethlisberger retiring for a long time, but if he retires, all he does is miss out on the money that the Steelers owe him. And it really doesn't make sense for him to miss out on that money unless he is really trying to make sure this Steelers team is set up for the future. But it doesn't have any sort of effect on him if it's set up for the future. He's not winning a ring. He's not going to be one of the guys coming home with a Super Bowl ring. So it doesn't have any effect on him. It just has an effect on his pocketbook and how much money he's going to have. So there's a ton of options for the Pittsburgh Steelers. If I was Mike Tomlin and Kevin Colbert, I'd be talking about the next option at quarterback. The first place they have to look is at Mason Rudolph and at Dwayne Haskins. Those are two young quarterbacks on their roster that who knows how much potential they have. We've seen both of them and they both haven't really shown us very much. But if the Steelers believe in Dwayne Haskins or they believe in Mason Rudolph, starting them this season would only help them continue to grow as a quarterback. Now, for Dwayne Haskins, I don't think he's got it in him at all. I don't think he's going to be a starting quarterback. If the football team thought he could be a starting quarterback, they would have kept him after drafting him in the first round. I think this is the same type of situation as Josh Rosen is going through. I just don't see him as a starting quarterback. And as far as Mason Rudolph goes, I, I've i seen him play. He's done an okay job, but he doesn't look special. He doesn't look like he's going to do any better than what Ben Roethlisberger can do. And I don't know if his growth or his direction of growth is the right direction for this team. I mean... Assuming that they're still a playoff team, they're still built up the way they are. Obviously, they lost their starting center to retirement. The quarterback situation's in flux. They have some pass rushers, some wide receivers that are hitting the open market. So this team is going to be a little bit shaken up. If they do decide to go with Mason Rudolph or Dwayne Haskins, you can see what you got. And for the Steelers, it's time for a rebuild. If I am Kevin Colbert, I'm looking at this team and I'm thinking we have some young talent. We've got the ability to be better. We need to find a new quarterback and we need to hit the restart button. Ben Roethlisberger was great in his time in Pittsburgh. But if you don't hit the restart button, if you don't actually go back into rebuild mode, then you're just going to be stuck in flux looking for a quarterback while not really being able to compete for that Super Bowl. And I don't think that's where the Pittsburgh Steelers want to do, especially with all the success that they've had in their in their past. I don't expect them to make this decision soon, but it is definitely something we should keep an eye on. Ben Roethlisberger for today is a Pittsburgh Steeler. But I think that the best option for this team moving forward is to try to talk him into retirement. And if that doesn't work, cut him. And I know it's a harsh world, a harsh world for the NFL, but... His salary is just too much to go against the books. And if you can take $19 million off the books with cutting Ben Roethlisberger, you're right back at zero. You're right back where you need to be with zero cap space and still an ability to move in the right direction. There's a couple more cut candidates on that team. Vince Williams, David DeCastro, a couple guys who could be cut. Uh, who knows who, what's going to happen with that? I do think Ben Roethlisberger and this news will be found out before the draft. We're probably going to find out if Ben Roethlisberger is going to be the starting quarterback before the draft. Now, if they do end up going into the draft and drafting a quarterback early on, it would most likely be somebody like Mac Jones. And Mac Jones would be ready to start right away. But beyond Mac Jones, if you're not drafting one of those top five guys, if you're looking at a guy like Kyle Trask, it might be better to keep Ben Roethlisberger on the roster and let him try to teach and let him grow underneath Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, Trask has the talent... He's just not quite NFL-ready. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin will be traded soon. Stay tuned. Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin will be traded soon? Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on Cade Radio. I want to jump right in with the Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin situation. Will these guys both be traded soon? So if you guys haven't heard, Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin are both sitting on the bench right now in anticipation of a trade before the trade deadline. Now, there's just over a week before the trade deadline in the NBA, and Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond are supposedly going to get traded. Now, let's start with Blake Griffin because I think he's way more complicated. I think his situation is a lot more difficult to understand, uh, and his trade would be way more complicated um, if it did go through. So, Blake Griffin is under a two-year contract for just under $80 million left. Now this is part of his five year one hundred and seventy one million dollar contract he signed about three years ago. and obviously he hasn't reached the expectations of that contract. but even so thirty six million dollars per year is a really, really tough sum to move around, especially for a player of Blake Griffin's caliber. So trying to trade Blake Griffin is going to be a challenge for the Pistons. The reason being is they're in his they're in a cap situation where He's going to get paid $36 million this year. Yes, that hurts your cap. And if you want to move Blake Griffin, you have to find somebody who is able to trade people who are up to $36 million worth of contract. The only reason being is, if they don't make that trade, the Pistons would trade Blake Griffin to a team that would not be in cap, that would be way below the cap. They wouldn't be able to afford Blake Griffin. It wouldn't make any sense. So a trade for Blake Griffin would have to be on not the Pistons terms, but the other team's terms. Because the other team would have to give up a big-time contract and they'd have to swallow Blake Griffin's two-year contract. Now, if $36 million this year was bad, wait until I tell you about what he's getting paid next year. His contract next year is $38 million. And this is something that is going to need to be paid to Blake Griffin. So there's not really any way to get out of this contract if you're the Detroit Pistons unless they can find a trade contract or a trade partner who is willing to eat the two years of this contract. Now, there's a few teams that maybe could be interested, but it's going to be tough pick-ins for these teams. It's going to be tough to find players who are adequate enough to put into this trade, who have big enough contracts, but aren't performing really well enough to make this trade worth it and there's a few teams that could be interested. I think the Oklahoma City Thunder could be interested in a the trade. They have some assets that are a little more expensive. Uh, they have a guy, um, they have Al Horford. Al Horford's under a big-time contract. They also have Trevor Ariza, and those guys could potentially come up to near that contract that Blake Griffin is worth, and I think Blake Griffin has and carries more value uh, than both of those guys, but again, he's not worth his contract. And $40 million just about for each year is just such a big sum of the contract. It's just something I don't see getting done. So for this team, I think they have to go down another route. I think there's got to be different directions for Blake Griffin because they really have to decide how they can move on from Blake Griffin because the bottom line is they need to deal with something. and, And there's probably going to be a buyout And Blake Griffin is probably going to be a free agent because I just don't believe there's an option or a team that will be willing to swallow that $38 and $36 million contract. It's just too much for somebody performing at the level Blake Griffin is performing at. And it's not that Blake Griffin's a bad player. He's just not the same player he was. If you look back at at how Blake Griffin became a star and what really happened for him to get to that point it was because of his athleticism, his ability to dunk, and his ability to really penetrate. And, and I mean, his play was very similar to uh, a modern day Zion Williamson. Obviously, his game has changed. He's becoming a completely different player. But this season, on a bad team, he has played very, very bad. Now, there's not much talent on this team around him. But for Blake Griffin, 12 points per game, 5 rebounds, and 4 assists, it doesn't sound awful. But if you look at his shooting splits and how poorly he's shooting, it's just another look at how Blake Griffin isn't the same guy he used to be. Now, on 11 shots per game, he's averaging 4.1 makes. That's only 36% of his shots are actually landing. Now, from the three point line, he's also even worse. He's hitting two for six per game. He's going high volume, three point shooting, but he's not capable of being a three point shooter. So, whatever team takes in his salary is going to be at a loss. And the Pistons. I think we're going to be the team that's at the biggest loss because nobody's going to be willing to take that salary. Nobody's going to want to bring in Blake Griffin with how much baggage he has. And when I say baggage, I mean $80 million worth of baggage. But nobody's going to want to make that deal. So for the Pistons, they're going to have to try to look for a trade or they're going to have to try to look for a buyout and try to see how much Blake Griffin would be interested to be bought out. Now, obviously, this is an expensive buyout. For Blake Griffin he's going to have to sacrifice if he wants to be bought out this season. Because if not, there's no reason for the Pistons to buy him out for a price that is similar to his contract. There's just no reason for them to do it. They'd be better off just keeping him on the roster and and that being that. But for Blake Griffin, if he doesn't get a buyout done, he's going to be sitting out and he's not going to be playing. And for the Pistons this wouldn't really hurt them either way. They're still going to be down in the money. They're still going to have to pay Blake Griffin. But if they do find a agreement with Blake Griffin where he sacrifices maybe even half of that contract, which is a big ask. I mean, asking somebody to sacrifice that much money is a big time ask, but it really comes down to, is Blake Griffin going to want to play on another team? I mean, if Blake Griffin wants to compete and he wants to play for another team, a buyout is his best option so he can get back on his feet and sign that free agency contract and play as soon as this year. I mean, there are players or teams that are looking for players like Blake Griffin and signing him to a veteran minimum would be very worth it. He's capable of being a veteran minimum. And if he does go with buyout and that is what happens, it's going to be tough. So... It's going to be tough to decide what happens with Blake Griffin. I think they go down the route of a buyout. I think Blake Griffin's going to end up losing about $10, maybe $20 million, depending on how much he's willing to give up. But he's going to be playing in the NBA again this season. It's just not going to be because of a trade. Now, on the other end of things, Andre Drummond is in the same boat as Blake Griffin, but his boat is a little bit nicer. So for Blake Griffin, his contract is the big issue. Andre Drummond is also on a pretty big contract, but his play has at least shown that he's capable of living up to that contract. Now, for Andre Drummond, he wants a new team, and this is the end of his contract. For the Cavaliers, it would make the most sense for them to trade him because after this season, he's just not going to come back. There's no reason for him to, to come back to the Cavaliers if he doesn't want to play for them now. So right now, Andre Drummond averaging 17.5 points, 13.5 rebounds, he could fill a big-time need on a lot of different teams, on a lot of different teams. And this is something that could be extremely, extremely important uh, because Andre Drummond is an impact player. He's a guy who is going to have a big-time impact wherever he ends up. And for teams like the Brooklyn Nets, they could be trying to make a move on a guy like Andre Drummond because of how big of an impact he would have defensively. And I think this team, the New York Nets or the Brooklyn Nets, are a team that need interior defense. They need the rebounding. And that's exactly what Andre Drummond brings. Now, can you imagine looking at the basketball court and here's the starting five? You go out with point guard James Harden, shooting guard Kyrie Irving out there running the three. That's uh, Kevin Durant. And then Jeff Green at the four with Andre Drummond at the five. Now, that is a great starting unit. But for the Nets to get to that point, for the Nets to actually make that type of deal, it would have to be trading away Joe Harris. And trading away Joe Harris is going to be very, very painful. Now, Joe Harris is on a four-year contract, giving him about $16 million per year. So his contract is about enough to get Andre Drummond. You're going to need another $12 million. And for Spencer Dinwiddie, who tore his ACL, that's really the only way to do it. Now, I think there's other options for Andre Drummond. I think the Raptors are a team that are going to want to make a move. And there's a couple guys that they could trade. It's just going to be tough, again, to make up that salary without trading somebody you don't want to trade. And for teams like the Raptors and teams like the Nets, there's people on those big-time salaries, and they don't really want to get rid of them. Now, for the Raptors, I think Norman Powell and Aaron Baines are the two main parts that would need to come into a trade but that would still leave them short of about 7 or $8 million, and I think they'd have to find another way to bring in Andre Drummond. There's a couple other teams that are doing a little bit better in cap space, but as far as an Andre Drummond trade goes, teams are going to have to sacrifice to bring him in. The Clippers are a team that could potentially make this sacrifice, but again, the Cavaliers are going to want a package that is worth Andre Drummond. Andre Drummond is going to be a guy who people are looking for, and because of his contract, they're going to have to eat some contracts themselves. So teams like the Clippers, who may be a great fit for Andre Drummond, they aren't really in the running because they don't have the draft capital, they don't have the ability to actually make that trade go through. And it's going to be really difficult to see where Andre Drummond goes, but I think Andre Drummond will be traded before the march 25th or excuse me uh, february 25th deadline which is really coming up i'm going to take a quick break when i come back i want to talk about the brooklyn nets or excuse me i want to talk about the milwaukee bucks and their major problem stay tuned the milwaukee bucks have a major problem welcome back to up for debate i'm your host cade reed thank you all very much for tuning in today We've covered a ton. We talked with Sean Clark about Champions League, St. John's basketball, and a couple other NFL topics. We also talked about why the franchise tag needs to go. There's no reason for it to stick around. There's a ton of issues with it. We talked about the Pittsburgh Steelers and their quarterback conundrum, Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin, and if they would be traded soon. And now to end off this show, I want to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bucks are currently on a four-game losing streak. But this isn't the first te- the first sign that this team has a problem. Now, This two-time MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo, has been playing for the Milwaukee Bucks his entire career, and yet they haven't been able to make an NBA championship. This is a big-time issue because the Milwaukee Bucks have shown that they have the talent to get it done. Giannis won the MVP award two times in a row this season. He's averaging 28 points, 11 rebounds, 6 assists he very well could be in the hunt for another MVP award. But it's really what's behind him that's kind of hindering this team. Chris Middleton's been good, 20 points per game. Drew Holiday as well. He's a new addition, 16.4. But neither of those guys, and neither does Giannis, none of these people on this team solve the problem that they have. And the problem that they have is they're not clutch. They are just not a clutch team. When it comes down to the end of the game, the Milwaukee Bucks have struggled. The Milwaukee Bucks have shown that when trailing after three quarters, they're not winning the game. So far this season, they're 0-9 in games like that. They have the second lowest win rate in games that went to clutch time this season. And when I say clutch time, I'm talking about a score that is within five points within the final five minutes. In games like that, the Bucks win those games 22% of the time. A fifth of the time, the Bucks are winning games that are five-point games with no time left. That is a big issue. Only the Detroit Pistons, who are one of the worst teams in the NBA, are paying Blake Griffin $36 million. That is the only team below them in this stat category. And this team has crumbled under pressure, whether it be in the playoffs or in the regular season. This team has not been winning games that they've needed to win down the stretch. And this is a problem because there's a big question that comes up when talking about this team. Who is going to take the final shot? Who's going to take the game winner for the Milwaukee Bucks? I mean, you can try to put the ball into Giannis's hands, but if Giannis is trailing by two or three points and he gets fouled, what are you going to do? Giannis hits 60% of his free throws, which is a pretty low percent, gives him an opportunity to hit both free throws if you put him on the line, But for a team, putting Giannis on the line will really only give them a better opportunity at winning. So you can't really have the ball in in Giannis onto the Kumpo's hands when it's a tough situation, when it's a game-winning situation like this. Unless it's a one-point game, then you can't really rely on Giannis to be that guy. Obviously, he can score those two-pointers, but if you foul him before he gets to the shot, if you foul him before he gets that shot opportunity, then the... Bucks have to deal with him as a free throw shooter, and he's a much better player than he is a free throw shooter. So, beyond that, beyond Giannis, where do they go with the ball? Do they go with Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton? Because I I, I just haven't seen Chris Middleton be that guy. Chris Middleton has been a member of this team. They've given him opportunities, but he hasn't come up with the, with the success they've needed on those game winners. When you're pressing him, when you're guarding him closely, he hasn't had very good success at shooting the ball and making it, especially in the game-winning situations. So for the Bucks, Chris Middleton is really a detriment when it comes to these games. Now, I know he is a great shooter. He's shooting 44% from three, 51% from the field. He's played incredibly all season long. But when you press him closely, when you don't have Giannis, and you're not really worried about Giannis having the ball in his hands, eyeing and, and stopping Chris Middleton has got to be the number one concern. And he's stoppable. Now, for Drew Holiday, he hasn't been that guy in his career. Now, yes, he is a great player, and he was worth, maybe not worth the capital that the Bucs gave to trade for him, but he was worth getting and, and bringing in for a trade. So for the Bucks, they're kind of going to have to hope that he can become that guy, that he can be the guy who wins the game for them down the stretch, because right now they don't have that guy. Brooke Lopez has been less than effective this season. Dante DiVincenzo hasn't really been the type of player they needed. Drew Holiday has to step up and be that clutch time shooter. If they don't use and and bring Drew Holiday as that guy, then what are they going to do? Are they going to continue to rely on Giannis and see him at the line struggling? Or are they going to try to force the ball into Chris Middleton's hands? I mean, there's options on the court for this team. They just have to find a closer. And right now, they don't have that. Now, for the Bucks, they don't have the trade capital to really make a big-time move. They traded a lot of what they had to bring in Drew Holiday. But we do know that this team isn't super content on Dante DiVincenzo. This offseason, he was traded for Bogdan Bogdanovich, which didn't actually go through. It didn't actually deteriorate or become that because... Bogdanovich didn't do the sign-and-trade, so the deal completely fell through. But we've seen that they are willing to move on from guys like DiVincenzo to try to get a closer. If they don't find that closer, I don't know if they have a chance to win the NBA championship. If they can't close out against the Sixers, if they can't close out against the Nets, how are they even going to reach the NBA championship? I don't think they'll be able to, unless they make that move. Now, that's going to do it for Up for Debate, Thank you all so much for tuning in. Make sure you tune in every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you guys the most debatable content in all of sports. You guys can follow me on social media at the underscore Cade Reed. I'll be posting updates for the show, different things like that. If you have any questions, comments, you can always hit me with a DM. Uh, Anything like that, I'm always open for it. So thank you all for tuning in. I will see you guys next time on Friday at 1. See you then.